That's better? Yeah, I can hear you, Chad. I can hear you. Okay. Excellent. I moved to the hallway. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. There may be a dog that enters into the podcast at some point here, but we'll, we'll give it a go. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I, this, these are all rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work at all. It's just a no crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bow. He shattered the mold and all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's podcast about the week in sports. I'm Chad Matlin, an editor at 538, coming to you live, sort of live, from Colorado, where I am visiting my parents for Thanksgiving. But back in the studio are Neil Payne and Kate Fagan. Hi, guys. Hey, Chad. Hi, Chad. How, what's going on over there? What part of Colorado are you in? I'm in Boulder, your old your old stopping grounds. Wow. Chad, tell me how the people there are feeling about the Buffaloes being number nine in the country. I will do a little recon. Do you want anything from the campus bookstore? <laughs> I would like. Oh, I meant to bring you guys Colorado gear. I don't need anything. Because but now Chad can do it. Now I have you. a bunch of Nike Colorado gear and I wanted to bring you each a T-shirt. So no, Chad, I've got the gear. I'll bring the gear. Wow. Can can you have one that's like kind of a 538 tie-in that says like Colorado Buffaloes 15% chance of making the college football playoff? <laughs> if on... they win out, there's a 46% <laughs> Oh yeah, chance. that's right. So... Let me let me tick the thing. It is 46. You've been checking the interactive of today, Kate. I have. I want you guys <laughs> up to date. Also to know that I hosted OTL last week and I brought in the college football playoff. Nice. And I used it as a full screen shot to show people how if Western Michigan won out, they still had a less than 1% chance of winning. So I got 538 some love on OTL, to which the Western Michigan coach said, less than 1%. So you're telling me there's a chance. (laughs) Oh, man. So we did a little Dumb and Dumber reference, and we did some 538 on OTL, and now Chad's in Colorado. We're all over the place. It's all coming together. It's all all coming together. Somehow. So for new listeners, we should explain, of course, that those voices you're hearing are our senior Colorado booster, Kate Fagan, also the ESPNW columnist and editor and writer for 538, Neil Payne. I myself am an editor at 538. Should we get to, the, to what's happened on the show? We Guys, should. Are you, are you ready to hear it. what we're going to talk about? All right. So this week and this Thanksgiving edition of Hot Takedown, we're going to talk about the Packers. What is wrong with the Packers, we're going to diagnose their ills and discuss whether there is an easy way to fix them. And then we will move on to Thanksgiving football, the NFL variety. Uh, Thanksgiving football, a mediocre tradition like no other. Neil is going to tell us why the NFL has been holding back from us all this, all these years, holding back good quality play. Uh, and we'll also preview a few of this Thursday's games. And then the U.S. men's national team has fired its head coach, Jurgen Klinsmann. Hot Takedown's resident Klinsmanologist, Mike Goodman, will join us to discuss what went wrong at one and what comes next. And then finally, for our significant digit, a different kind of Thanksgiving football about the dangers of a casual football game on Thanksgiving Day with your family. Real quick, before we get to the show, 
Neil, ahead of their time, has come to a close. I know. Those five brilliant, wonderful episodes. The last one was in Listener's Hot Takedown Feeds last week uh, about Randall Cunningham. How are you feeling that your your big documentary project is over? Oh, well, you know, mostly uh, just a, a weight off my shoulders, but also, you know, I was excited. I'm, I'm proud of uh, what we accomplished, and uh, I'm, I'm look, already looking ahead to ideas for season two of Ahead of Their Time. Is there going to be a season two of Ahead of Their Time? There, there's not not going to be a season two, uh, as far as I know. <laughs> How many, you heard it here first. <laughs> there's not not going to be one. How many people were ahead of their time in sports? I mean, do you think that this is like an endless conceit that we could mine because i like it yeah no i I think there's no shortage of people that were ahead of their time in fact they're being made right now we just won't know who was ahead of their time uh for another 20 years but that's in and of itself guarantees us uh, a very long running series every every year other people are transition into the marker of ahead of their time right because they were Well, they become of their time, right? Right now, like the people 19 years ago, next year will know that they were ahead of their time. Right, it's like the waiting period for the Hall of Fame. (laughs) Yes, that's what I'm trying to articulate. Okay, well, uh, listeners, stay tuned for that indeterminate time when ahead of their time will return. And thanks for listening for the last last month and a half to those those great documentaries from, from Neil and Joe and others in the Hot Takedown universe. Okay. So what is wrong with the Green Bay Packers? They are four and six. They lost forty-two to twenty-four last weekend against the Washington Redskins. Their fourth straight loss. The Packers have allowed five hundred and the Packers allowed to Washington five hundred fifteen yards, six touchdowns, and three fifty-yard plays in the fourth quarter alone. Five thirty-eight has them at a six percent chance to make the playoffs. That is not the kind of thing we're used to seeing. For Aaron Rodgers. So, Kate, let me start with you. What are you seeing about this Packers team that, that's different? I think what is most frightening if you're a Packers fan is that various problems have reared their head throughout the season. I think in the first few weeks, the question was, well, Aaron Rodgers needed to you know, get back his fundamentals in the pocket and stop throwing off the wrong foot and certain things that felt very fixable, even though you could go back to last season and see that there was a struggle with Aaron Rodgers in the receiving core, but then there were injuries that you could call into question to say, well, he just needed certain guys back to throw to and to fix how he had been scrambling out of the pocket and then throwing downfield. Now, as as the season has progressed, you've started to see problems, like you mentioned, like 350-yard plays. and there, there's, I mean, there's a lot of folks in the NFL who think, Every time you give up a 50-yard play, like that is the greatest indication of your team being struggling or being the more you give up. like That's the, the, the cardinal sort of flag for a poor football team. So now you've got issues with the secondary. You've got questions about whether or not Mike McCarthy should even be fired, whether they need to replace the defensive coordinator. So it's kind of become a widespread problem, widespread issues among for the excuse me for the Packers, but it, throughout all of this, to me as somebody who's watched the Packers over the last decade, it's like I refuse to believe they're bad for a longer period of time because I haven't seen them be bad. It's like that brand name quality where you're like, well, no, 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 the brand name actually has some level of value in it, and I'm not going to see the truth as quickly as I might from some you know new team or upstart team or non quote unquote brand name. Right. And for me, it, over the past, not just this year, but really probably going back to various points uh, in, in, since 2013, 
is this idea of if it's not one thing for the Packers, it's another thing. So, you know, Aaron Rodgers had a kind of a down year last year. And some of that was like you mentioned, Kate, you know, Jordy Nelson was out and he was trying to figure out the receiving situation. But at least then the defense was actually, you know, pretty good. Uh, top half of the NFL, you know, good pass defense. You know, the, the secondary played well. So then this year you get Nelson back. You get Aaron Rodgers actually playing better, playing like the Aaron Rodgers that we used to know. And so if, if that was all that you knew, uh, if somebody told you that going into the season, you think, oh, Packers are going to be great this year then because they've kind of plugged up one of the only kind of question marks that they had last year. But then as soon as Rodgers starts playing better and the offense starts playing better, the defense goes to hell. And especially, you know, the pass defense, which had been one of the strengths of the team a year ago. And so really, for me, it's this case of like, you know, you have one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history, but he is not getting any younger. He's uh, 33 years old, uh, or turns 33 in, in December, and he really doesn't have probably that many more prime years left. And you know, it's a case where you really need to have the roster around him playing their best. And instead, they've had injuries. Clay Matthews has been you know in and out of the lineup, and they just can't seem to put it together. And this is kind of you know, like you mentioned, Chad, with such low playoff odds, they might they'll probably miss the playoffs this year, and they'll waste a year of Aaron Rodgers prime which is a terrible shame for that franchise and there's and there's some discussion at least if, if you talk to Packers fans where perhaps for those of us who catch them sometimes during the week sometimes we don't religiously watch them every single week for some I think really hardcore Packer fans this isn't as surprising as it might be for some of us who certainly watch them but don't watch them as fanatically and there is an element of like Perhaps this is the wake-up call that the Packers need in general to make the changes that they have been reticent to make because of the 2011 Super Bowl and because they've generally been really good, even though now I'm sitting here and thinking, I can't believe I'm even thinking, like, have the Packers actually underachieved with Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, and I mean, that's a they, question I wouldn't have asked two years ago, and now I'm like, should they have one more? Actually, yeah, I mean, I think you, there's no way to kind of look at it and and think that they probably should should have won more, right? I mean, when they went 15 and one in 2011, they lost to the Giants in the playoffs uh, at home, and in then the ever freezing, freezing, in the cold. freezing, freezing <laughs> cold, and ever since then, it's been pretty up and down for them. They've been good, and and certainly we haven't really seen them dip to the point at which they're at right now as we speak, but they've always seemed to kind of leave you wanting more, and we've seen with other great quarterbacks of what we believe to be Rodgers standing, and we've talked about this on the show in the past, that you can never really know how good a quarterback necessarily is, divorced from the situation in which he's in, but, you know, all of our indicators say that Rodgers is right up there with Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and people like that. But Peyton Manning and Tom Brady didn't necessarily have seasons that were kind of uh, where, where the team sort of struggled like the Packers are struggling right now at this moment. You know who did, though, was Brett Favre uh, when, when he was with the Packers. And maybe if the Packers can draw some encouragement from that career arc was that Favre, after being fantastic in the late 90s, he kind of fell off and the Packers were sort of up and down at varying points, even through the mid-2000s, and then they actually came back and were good again. So maybe that offers hope that if you sort of stay the course with your quarterback and change some pieces and maybe change the co- uh, the coach, I don't know, that you could build a team and kind of keep that continuity with one of these all-time great quarterbacks under center. Yeah, 
this this conversation sort of reminded me of the many conversations we've had about the the effect that one player can have on a team and whether a quarterback in football can have that larger effect. Um, because I'm looking at the defensive stats this year for the Packers and a team that had led the league in interceptions and um, and and was fifth in total takeaways for, from 2009 through last season. Now all of a sudden is in the middle or on the wrong side of the middle or you know in the back end of the pack in in those two categories. So I wonder if it's just as simple as fixing the defense, and that could maybe be as simple as getting Clay Matthews and a few other players back who are injured, but maybe that brings us back to Mike McCarthy and what you do with a coach uh, for a team that has been injured, but is underachieving with a great quarterback, you know, what, when's the right time to pull the trigger on a firing? We'll talk about this later in the show with the U S men's national team as well. We've talked on this podcast about the balance between the uh, keeping a coach and the upside of continuity versus knowing when a coach just isn't the right fit for that team anymore. And that's kind of the vacuum in which the Packers seem to find themselves right now because there are indications that because of the defensive struggles and injuries and other factors at play for the Green Bay Packers, it could simply be weathering this certain season for them and not making drastic changes to coach or quarterback. And they'll find themselves back in the place at the top of the league that they were a couple years ago. But There's also other indicators that the Packers are having issues with innovation on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, if if you look at some of the statistics from the early season and the play calling and the lack of of innovation when it came to like how many like the lineup for and the structure of the receiving core and how many wide receivers they were lining up on each play. Like there was absolutely no variance from play to play. It was like the Packers were at the bottom of the league in innovative offensive schemes and how they're running the wide receivers. And some of that seemed to indicate that it wasn't just Aaron Rodgers fundamentals and struggles and injuries, but it was also like the Packers relying on a form of offense that had worked for them at one point and perhaps wasn't working in the same way now. Yeah. And McCarthy, you know, it's worth saying his background is as an offensive coach. And uh, oftentimes we've talked about this uh, in the past. Also, this idea of when a team replaces its coach, it tends to play better afterward. And I've attributed that in the past to regression to the mean, just simply, you know, at the point at which a team has kind of gotten to the end of its rope with a coach and fires them is often the point in which you play badly, but also you have some bad luck. And uh when that reverses itself, it makes it appear as though your team is actually playing better because of the coaching change, but it actually would have happened anyway. But there probably is something to also the idea of having a new voice and having a new style, especially when you are relying on one particular player and one particular side of the ball. And so, you know, uh, if I were the co- uh, if I were the owner of the Packers, whatever that actually means, uh, I don't know how who who actually decides. I guess it's the GM still uh, with, with the Packers. Um, who decides who who stays and who goes? But if I were running that show, uh, you know, I would side with what you said, Chad, of this idea that you know you still have Aaron Rodgers, and since turnovers and special teams are both inconsistent and also really important to winning games, that you could kind of automatically get a hike uh, just by kind of 
letting them regress to the mean. But again, it's something where we don't know. And that's kind of the problem with football and, and making decisions in such a small sample is you never know whether what you did was luck or what you're not what what you didn't do was not addressing what was real or if you were overreacting. It's a it's a very uh, tough position to be in. Okay, let's leave it there. Uh, as usual, we've offered great advice to uh, a fan base, which is to stay patient. And, and no matter what decision is made, it could be the good one or it could be the bad one. That's the patented hot Tons of insight uh, offered. Advice. Oh, sure, of course. And yeah. we, we've even added to the ranks of that fan base. So we're, we're really uh, having a Packer season here on Hot Takedown. <laughs> All right, let's uh, leave it there and move on to Thanksgiving football. So this Thursday, there's going, there are going to be three football games. And for only the second time since 1935, all the games, when there are three more games, are with teams 500 or better. That is a stat that totally blew my mind and gets to this crucial point that Thanksgiving football is so often bad. Um, and Neil, you wrote about this this week uh, on 538, and I'm wondering – as you as you plumbed the depths of really bad football games, you know what what popped out of you, and and is there a way to fix this weird tradition that we have of watching certain teams every year, year in and year out, and those teams often aren't very good. Yeah, this year uh, is kind of a gift, uh, a, 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 an early Christmas gift, a Thanksgiving gift, whatever you want to call it, a, a holiday surprise of actually having the Thanksgiving games be good because the the rule over the years is that. The Thanksgiving games are really not that much better than the typical just run-of-the-mill NFL game that you see if you look at the quality of the two teams involved. Uh, and, and it's far below what you would see from the primetime games. So, for instance, you know, Sunday night, Monday night football, th- even Thursday night football. Uh, Thanksgiving games, as far as I'm concerned, and this is just my opinion, it feels like they should be better than random Thursday night football games in general. It's a, it's a you know, holiday show showcase for the league. Uh, And yet, over the years, they haven't been. And uh, the main culprit for that, sad to say, is the Detroit Lions. This is a team that uh, has played more Thanksgiving games than any other team in the NFL by far, in fact. They they played 76 Thanksgiving Day games uh, going back to the 1920s. And they've participated in 34% of all Thanksgiving matchups ever. Uh, and, And yet, at the time, of playing those games, they've had a below average ELO rating. That's our power rating that we have here at 538. The other three most common teams by far are the Dallas Cowboys, the Green Bay Packers, and the Chicago Bears. And they've actually all been pretty good at the time of their Thanksgiving games. So uh, you can kind of isolate the Detroit Lions as an example of a team that because of tradition, they always play on Thanksgiving. It's part of the lore of, you know, football uh, in America on Thanksgiving. But at the same time, uh, what I suggested in my story that I wrote was that the uh, the NFL might want to think about uh, looking at the NBA as an example. The NBA on Christmas Day always uh, features very marquee matchups. They, they tend to go with a rematch of the previous year's finals in addition to other, you know, kind of interesting matchups of good teams. And they're not wedded to just having one particular team or a group of particular teams in the matchups every year. They they change it up often. And uh, when they do stick with a team, it's a team like the Lakers, for instance, who are, aside from the past couple of years, perennially pretty good 
a pretty good team. So uh, I suggested that the NFL could kind of look at that model as an alternative uh, to the tradition-based model and, and might provide us with better Thanksgiving games. Now, this year we lucked into a good crop of games, but that's really the exception, not the rule. I'm torn about whether I would actually want to follow the NBA model <laughs> for Thanksgiving games and, and have like the best two games on Thanksgiving because we can, because and perhaps it's a knee jerk reaction, like against the loss of like conference uh, conferences in college football and the loss of some of that tradition. And perhaps it's also the fact that until I read that article and until we had this discussion, it never even occurred to me that Thanksgiving could be, for example, the Seattle Seahawks versus the, you know, New York Giants. I know the Giants sometimes play, but like I never even considered it because I was like, I'm so accustomed to thinking that our Thanksgiving days, for whatever reason, have to be have to include the Detroit Lions right. and, the, and the Dallas Cowboys. And there's some sort of resigned merit in that, perhaps, because every Thanksgiving I know which that that often I'm going to get a subpar game, but that it allows to be a kind of like background noise for Thanksgiving. And occasionally it's not. Occasionally it's a very important, meaningful game. But as you just suggest, as, as Neil, as you just said, considering the history of it and the ELO ratings and the Detroit Lions participation, uh, participation often it is background noise for Thanksgiving, which seems ideal. So, so yeah, Kate, I'm, I'm tempted by your explanation because for me, this feels... Tr- the money ball or the optimization of everything, which is, I think, what statistics and analytics push us towards, is well and good if you want the world to be optimized. But, like, there's a lot of joy that can come from the same mediocre stuffing that your grandmother has made every Thanksgiving, for example, right? And, like, you don't always have to go into a fancy food magazine or to some, like, gastronomy recipe book to find the best way to make stuffing because sometimes you just want the stuffing that you've had for 20 years and in some way to your point kate i don't need for it to be so good that i actually want to watch it it's like a great podcast that's on in the background while i cook well uh as kind of a counterpoint to that how do y'all feel about uh NBA Christmas games, because those, like we said, do tend to be sort of uh, really important matchups or at least, you know, marquee matchups. Does it take away the, the, from that uh, the fact that you kind of are spending time with family and you can't actually focus on uh, the basketball as much as you might want to think- or feel like you should? Does that kind of make it almost a bad thing? Like, should they reserve those games for some other day in which you don't have family obligations i think part of the issue is that i've never known otherwise for the nba right and i've or for the for the nfl like i know that this is the way it's been for 20 years so i guess the metaphor to build off of chad's would be if i lived in a town in which they had like a craft coffee spot would i want them to all of a sudden go away and i could only have folgers no (laughs) but if every morning i had gotten up and made folgers and and then all of a sudden a craft coffee spot came into town i might be I might be more willing to stick with my Folgers than 
to go backward from the Kraft Coffee, if that made sense. So the so NBA is, is the Kraft, Kraft Coffee, coffee and, and the, the NFL, NFL is Folgers. Folgers. In this metaphor, and it's like, okay. well, if every day I woke up with Folgers, I'm not just going to automatically want the Kraft Coffee shop. I mean, it is the best part of waking up, right, Kate? I wonder if Folgers <laughs> wants to sponsor this, this year's podcast. Actually, they wouldn't, considering this metaphor. for that sponsorship. So I don't know. I mean, it's all a matter of, like, what value are you getting from the tradition of it versus the quality of it? Right. I mean, I, I guess. What, oh, uh, is this where we wanted the segment ahead, to go? <laughs> yeah, you should go ahead. Chad. I, so, yeah, I guess what I'm maybe asking or proposing is that if analytics are going to disrupt tradition, it should be tradition that materially affects the game. And I say that because we've seen obviously on the court or on the field that happened with uh, general managers and, and coaches. Right. We've talked about uh, ad nauseum about. Uh, things like the defensive shift, things like um, the three-point uh, focus game that the Golden State Warriors have done, uh, you know, the way that the ball moves differently in both basketball and soccer now than how it used to. All of that makes sense for me for analytics disrupting something. Um, I would also extend that to something like robots being umpires in baseball, which I know is very controversial, but that has a material effect on the game itself. I'm not sure that analytics need to disrupt tradition that doesn't materially affect the game in a way that the slate of Thanksgiving matches in, in football, uh, uh, it, that it would disrupt the Thanksgiving slate of matches in football. Because to me, that's about, in some ways, it's about like commerce and fan enjoyment. And I think there's also something to be said for tradition being part of commerce and fan enjoyment. So it's kind of like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or, uh, or don't go looking for something to fix, right, Chad? If it ain't broke, don't... Well, so the trick is that it is broke, and I'm saying don't optimize it anyway. You know, like well, I mean, the, the I Thanksgiving mean, slate of games mm-hmm. isn't isn't. I guess it's not broke, but it's not best. If it is, if it isn't best, don't optimize it. Right, like the value of nostalgia and tradition trumps the extra squeeze of value that we would get out of slightly and better maybe matchups. Also, on it's right. a matter of you know analytics should optimize things that we can actually quantify and we're only quantifying and admittedly so uh, uh, maybe to run the risk of arguing against myself in this particular case we're quantifying the absolute quality of the particular matchups but we can't quantify the other things that you guys mentioned like you know the nostalgia factor or you know whether it's actually good to have that on in the background as being a non-meaningful game uh, because you're doing other things or it's just there as as background noise so yeah we're optimizing one particular aspect of it but perhaps we don't have a metric and we can't put a number on all of the particular facets that ideally we would want to optimize and i feel like i should answer the question one of the questions that i'm assuming is on the mind of some of the podcast listeners because it was on my mind after i read your piece which is (laughs) why do the detroit lions always play on Thanksgiving. I did some research. Did oh, you, you also? did the research. Thank you, you, Kate. Okay, so here, because I, th- this is at least to answer the Detroit Lions question about why they always play. And and you can do this Google search and there's an article on mental floss that, that comes up about why. And it Thank it God states, for mental floss. Thank goodness. It states that in 1934, the Tigers, the baseball Tigers, were really good. They had Hank Greenberg and they won like 101 games that year. And so the 
Lions of the football Lions weren't drawing well. And so the marketers, the, the owner for that particular franchise needed a marketing ploy. And I don't know why playing on Thanksgiving would be a marketing ploy because to me it seems like it could perhaps be a death sentence, right? Because not all fans you would think would want to show up on a holiday. But for some reason it worked. For some reason it worked and it worked for, for the TV broadcast as well. I don't well. think TV existed back then, right? Well, the radio, radio, radio. Sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean TV. I meant radio. As something like you, like we're talking about now, the background noise for like family get-togethers, and for some reason that took. And so the Lions have played on Thanksgiving ever since 1934 because it was their original idea to program on Thanksgiving Day. Oh, interesting. So they are sort of the inventors of the Thanksgiving Day football. The program. You know what they were, Neil. <laughs> They were ahead of their time. Oh, Chad. Wow, you should look into that. Uh, all right, let's, let's leave it there. I think let's spare uh, – uh, let, let's not get into the, the matchups of the actual games. You can go to ESPN and read plenty of things uh, about, about the matchups. And they, and they should be good, as we mentioned. All the teams are 500 or above. Even the Detroit uh, the Lions. Cowboys. Even the Detroit Lions, the Cowboys, the Lions, the Vikings, the Redskins. Um, and, of course, the Steelers and the Colts are also playing. So let's leave it there and move on to a different kind of football, soccer. On Monday, the U.S. men's national team announced that they were firing their head coach and technical director, Jurgen Klinsmann. We do not dare talk about anything involving soccer without Mike Goodman of the Double Pivot Podcast. Hello, Mike. Hey, Chad. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. So, Mike, the U.S. had two losses in the opening games of their uh, regional World Cup qualifying, a 2-1 defeat against Mexico that it seemed like maybe you could excuse and, and, and um, explain away. But then four days later, they lost to Costa Rica 4 nothing. their worst setback in a qualifier in 36 years. What, what happened with Klinsmann? What went wrong? He was the great German hope for a while there. Well, I think... You know the the last the last two matches were sort of the the finishing stroke, but um, it's been building for a while uh, since the World Cup in 2014. Performances haven't been particularly good um, in aggregate, and even when they've they've gotten results, the the sort of the underlying how they've played hasn't been great. Um, you know they reached the Copa America semifinals last summer, but again they didn't play all that well. Um, and so when you look at these last two matches, it's, 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 it's again, something similar where even losing these, losing to Mexico at home and then on the road to Costa Rica might be excusable, but the performances, especially against Costa Rica were so bad that you just, you, you sort of lose any faith that, that Klinsman is going to turn it around. Mike, I feel as if, and I'm wondering if you felt this throughout the years that Klinsman has been at the helm, that there has been, some leash extended to Klinsmann because he's from outside of the U.S. He's from Germany, uh, you know, more where like the the origin of the game exists and where like the, the vast amounts of knowledge um, of the game exist. And there's been a leash given to him because he's from that place as opposed to, you know, Bob Bradley or a previous American coach who has gotten the axe much quicker. I mean, it's kind of in the same way that I think if the NFL expanded internationally, coaches of teams who were international, who were foreign, might get axed quicker than like American coaches because it's like, it's our game. It's kind of an abstract question, but did you sense that Klinsman got more of a leash because he wasn't American in a way? 
So I think that's a little bit tied up in what Klinsman's mandate was with the team. Right? He wasn't hired just to coach the team on the sidelines. He was hired sort of on the strength of his vision for the future of U.S. soccer. Uh, he was also the technical director for the Soccer Federation. So that comes with a whole bunch of different types of expectations. You know, it's like a dual mandate. It's, yes, we want to win games right now, but we also want to plan for the future. And so there's this ability when performances aren't great for Klinsman to sort of fall back on this idea that, well, yes, you don't understand, though, that, yes, maybe the performances now aren't great, but we're building towards something. And so what ends up having to happen before he loses his job is not only are the performances not great, but you sort of lose faith in the program and the path forward that he's also preaching. And so, yeah, I do think there was some extra leeway given. And that comes from, yes, it comes from who he is. I mean, he was a star as a player. He's, he's German. And so he comes with all of these things wrapped up. But what he is as a person is inextricably tied to sort of what his promise for the U.S. was when they hired him. And Mike, uh, do you think that that criticism of sort of the trajectory or the direction in which uh, he was kind of building the future of the program and the direction of the program was justified? Because we know the on field results were pretty mixed and and I re- even wrote a post yesterday about where he basically left the US with pretty much the same elo rating and and world ranking uh in which he found them but do you think it's fair to say that uh, that is kind of true also in terms of the the technical director aspect did he leave them the cupboard kind of bare or did he leave it in a better place for Bruce Arena now to pick up and run with yeah it's a complicated Question. Um, development and development is always, um, th- there's never one factor that goes into it, right? On, on one hand, during his tenure, the U.S. did go out and were very aggressive at sort of recruiting dual nationals, players that were both U.S. citizens and citizens of another country. And some of the most important players now are players who uh, came in under Klinsman, uh, who could have conceivably played for another country. Uh, you know, F- Fabian Johnson is a good example of that. Uh, you know, the, the young rising star, Kristen Pulisic, is a dual national. So getting him into the U.S. program, making sure he played for the U.S., those things are important. And those things, Klinsman, were fine under Klinsman's reign. Um, the bigger question about youth development um, and sort of the, the competitiveness at the U.S. at sort of the, the youth rank levels and how we develop talent uh, – you know, sort of the nexus of major league soccer and college soccer and developmental academies and all those things. That's a little harder to unpack. And that's probably even a bigger discussion than, than a five-year reign can sort of point to. But it is fair to point out that the U.S. didn't qualify for the Olympics. The youth, the youth programs have not been especially competitive over the last five years. They haven't been especially worse than they were before Klinsman, but you have to look really, really hard to point to things that Klinsman specifically did to advance the program. Uh, it, f- it feels as if Bruce Arena, for all his credentials, is the equivalent of a retread coach in the NBA as well. Like, How is U.S. soccer in a place where instead of if, and, and this is sort of a, a not expert take but perhaps just a an a layman's u.s soccer fans take how is u.s soccer in a place where it feels like we're going backward yeah it's a fair question um i think it's important to point out that bruce arena was also 
a very accomplished men's national team coach the first time around. Uh, you know, he led them to the, the quarterfinals in 2002 and, you know, really within a very questionable call of the semifinals. And he's a very co- accomplished MLS coach. I would call him a safe pick. I'm not sure I'd call him a retread. And I think that when you're sort of staring a, a real risk of not qualifying for the World Cup at all in the face, it makes sense to pick a safe manager for the next two years. Somebody who you know is going to, who you know you can bring in. There won't be a large cultural adaptation. There's not going to be a huge amount of changing how you do things, but you have a good chance he's going to line up the players that you have, line them up right, line them up well, and sort of increase your chances for the next five games of getting results that you really desperately need. And do you think, Mike, that this will kind of, uh, you mentioned Arena being a safe pick. Do you think that this is going to be kind of a trend uh, and that the men's national team might be more averse to taking a flyer on somebody like Klinsman down the line, somebody that promises to not just you know keep the team playing at a respectable level but kind of transform it into and remold it in the, in the shape of some of the leading teams uh, from throughout the world? Do you think that they're going to be less willing to take a chance on someone like that down the road because of Clintsman's uh, tenure? You know, I'm not sure. I think that Arena is probably, assuming they qualify for the World Cup, assuming he gets them turned around, I think he'll be here through the 2018 World Cup. But I think at that point, you do have an opportunity to swing back the other way. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if the U.S. did take another big swing. Um, it's probably smart to reevaluate how much responsibility you put on one person. Uh, I'm not sure you want the technical director who you task with revamping a program to also be the guy manning the sidelines. And I do think that that's something that the U.S. can and should reevaluate. But I wouldn't be surprised if they do look, especially in the technical director position, for somebody who can, who has big ideas, who has a history of um, sort of revamping how programs work. Um, I'm not sure that an international personality would necessarily be the right fit for that job because there are quirks to the U.S. system that don't exist overseas. I mean, specifically the way in which academies interact with the college system in in the U.S. uh, complicates matters. But I do think there's an opening for sort of broad brush developmental ideas. Mike, a question for you about that post-2018 sort of shakeup that you mentioned might happen. How long does a national team coach have need rather to, to make the team his or her own? And is it different than at a club level where there's the transfer window that obviously maybe there's a bit more movement um, uh, that's possible or maybe less. I don't, I don't know. I'm not yeah, familiar yeah. With it's, the world, it's interesting. It, it does... And it's, it, it, it depends country to country. The U S is at a place now where we have a fairly broad talent base, you know, And so that means that a large part of the job is selecting which of your players are the best 18 or 20 players or 24 players, however many, to bring in and give minutes to. And so it shouldn't necessarily take too long to customize that, but that's part of the job. Earlier on, or in some or in smaller countries, you really don't have much choice in terms of what your talent is, right? You're just sort of you're stuck with the guys that you have. There's just not that many good players, and so for them, it doesn't take very long. At the at the at the complete other end of the spectrum, you have places like you know the Germanys, the Spains, the Englands of the world, where 
it can take a while to remold players, remold images, and it becomes sort of interwoven with the fabric of the the sort of the soccer culture of the country. And if you really want to make something change and do something different, it can take years to sort of implement that stuff going all the way down the developmental system. The U.S. is kind of in the middle. So they have a lot of good players, but a lot of those players, they're not great players, right? They're good players. But a lot of them come from a lot of different walks of life. Some of them are developed in the U.S. through MLS and through the college system. Some of them are developed overseas by, you know, uh, U.S. You know, they're basically they're U.S. expat kids uh, who have grown up and come up in academies for European clubs. And so what you're really doing is you're drawing them together and trying to form something cohesive. It's kind of a unique challenge, Um and it'll be interesting to see how Arena does it because last time he managed the team, there wasn't this sort of broad-based talent. Uh, it was much more sort of narrowly focused. And he was resistant to international uh, dual citizen players, right? That, that's something so, yeah, I've been reading. Th- I mean, it, this may, it, this it, may it, it's fair to talk about when we talk about Arena. Um, he has said – what he has basically said is he doesn't – when he's expounded upon his comments is – You've got an American passport. You've got a right to play for the U.S. national team. He just wants to make sure that everybody who plays to the team is committed to being there, which is, you know, they're fair comments, but it's also fair to raise the question, why are we questioning what if some players want to be there and we're not questioning if other players want to be there, right? I mean, you'd much, you would much prefer to hear him say, look, they're all Americans. I just want the best players on the team, you know, the best players that we have out on, out on the field. And I do think that that's a real lingering issue, especially when – a lot of the players that have become sort of the the tent poles of this team are dual national citizens. So, I mean, that is something that needs to be addressed. Okay, let's leave it there, Mike. It seems like we won't know quite what happens next until what is it March when uh, the next qualifying match is played for the World Cup. That's the next thing yep, to look that's out right. for. March it's, against it's Panama. Seeing... Excellent, um, and I'm sure we'll have you back on. Somewhere around then, Mike Goodman of the Double Pivot Podcast, as ever. A pleasure to chat with you. All right. Great talking to you guys. And now it's time in our show for the Significant Digit, a telling number from the world of sports. This one is a bit uh, different from usual because of our location changes and, and time changes and whatnot. Uh, we, Neil and I actually recorded it yesterday in studio with 538's economics editor and writer Ben Castleman, since it's a bit of a personal story. So I think uh, let's just go straight to Ben and, and, and have Ben introduce the significant digit. So so digit, indeed, you'll see. Uh, the number is 549, which is the number of Americans ages 25 and up who hurt themselves playing football <laughs> on Thanksgiving in 2014. Uh, and believe it or not, that is... First of all, 30% more than any other day of the year. Uh, And secondly, actually pretty good compared to other years. Over the last six years, it's averaged around 1,000 people every year. We are getting better at not hurting ourselves. It was a down year. It was a down year, but I trust that this year we'll all go out and hurt ourselves. Is that a completest number, or is that just we know at least 549 People have done it. Well, so this is based on some data from the Consumer Product Safety Commission, uh, which has a sample of uh, hospital of emergency rooms, which they then weight up to be uh, the, the what they think is the full population. So they think this is, is an accurate estimate of the number of people who actually went to the emergency room. This does not count all of those people who tweaked a knee and, and didn't 
go in. So NFL players who were actually injured playing football on Thanksgiving, they wouldn't be counted in this because they wouldn't be among the rank and file that go to the emergency room. Yeah, so this will count anybody. I eliminated anybody under 25 who might actually be like college football players or real football players. Like real athletes. Uh, and this is people who show up to the emergency room. So, yeah, presumably the uh, the, the uh, Detroit Lions, when they hurt themselves <laughs> on Thursday, will not show up in this data. Ben, what, what made you look into oh, this in the first oh, place? funny you should ask, I Chad. Ask. So I indeed do play an annual game of, uh, of football on Thanksgiving. As the so day after many people do. As yeah. many do. Good New England At boy, least 549 did. At least that. <laughs> and I, I uh, a few years back, uh, broke a finger. Uh, this is hence it's a digit. And uh, did I attended? Uh, I went to the emergency room, which was full of pe- of basically men of a certain age, kind of people in their thirties and forties who are perhaps not uh, regular athletes, g- grabbing their knees and their shoulders. And and uh, so I, I looked into this, and I turned out to be like the median example of this. Uh, I hurt myself when I was thirty two. The median age is thirty three. It's almost all men, which will surprise no one. And the number one digit, the number one thing that they hurt are their digits, are their fingers. <laughs> and Ben, I should say that uh, I was invited to play a flag football game tonight, and I declined it almost specifically because <laughs> I thought of your significant digit and your insignificant digit, or whatever you would call it, your injured so, digit. The good thing about podcasts is you can do them without your fingers. Writing stories, right. not typing so them harder. Very quickly before we go. Given your experience, any advice for our listeners to avoid a repeat incident of your own malady or avoiding becoming one of the 549? As a general rule, football, then beer, better order than beer, then football. You heard it here first, (laughs) folks. Don't drink and play football if you are of a certain age when you haven't handled a football or gotten tackled in some time. Uh, Ben Castleman, 538. Ben Castleman, thanks very much for giving us our significant digit. Thanks for having me on. Okay, that will do it for this week's show. Thanks to Ben Castleman for coming on. And, of course, thanks to Kate Fagan. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Chad. Neil Payne. Thanks for chatting. Thanks, Chad. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Our podcast technical director is Jody Abergan. we got production assistance from Tony Chow. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We would love to hear what you think. You can find us on your favorite podcasting app and iTunes course as well subscribe at itunes.com slash 538 be sure to review and rate the show while you're there it helps others discover the program our theme song is by mystery mansion i'm chadwick matlin happy thanksgiving <laughs>